What does a contraction feel like? How do I know if I'm in labor? And what does a day of labor look like? Wait, is this normal? Hey, I'm Heidi. My best friends call me Hydes. I'm a certified birth doula, host of this podcast, and author of Birth Story, an interactive pregnancy guidebook. I have supported hundreds of women through their labor and deliveries, and I believe every one of them and you deserves a microphone and a stage. So here we are. Listen each week to get answers to these tough questions. Birth Story, where we talk about pregnancy, labor, deliveries, where we tell our stories and share our feelings. And of course, chat about our favorite baby products and motherhood. And because I'm passionate about birth outcomes, you will hear from some of the top experts in labor and delivery. Whether you are pregnant, trying desperately to get pregnant, or you just love a good birth story, I hope you will stick around and be part of this birth story family. You guys, my book is out. I mean, it is out in the world. I cannot believe it. I have been writing it for several years and it's just mind-blowing. Birth Story, Pregnancy Guidebook and Journal is a -a one-of-a-kind discovery into your pregnancy that provides you education through storytelling. So what's it really about? In the 16 years that I have served women with every personality type, I noticed there was a huge disconnect between what my clients were craving for childbirth education in a book and the books that were actually available on the market. There seemed to be unlimited resources if you are looking for an unmedicated birth or a natural birth or a home birth. But there just weren't a lot of resources for my clients who were part of the 92% of women birthing in a hospital and very much open to medical interventions like an epidural, nitrous oxide, and opioid medications. So I wrote that book to fill the gap for you. Week by week throughout your pregnancy, you will engage with material meant to educate and empower you as you plan for your own birth story, hospital, medicated, unmedicated, or something in between. You are welcomed each week with a postcard from the womb, which is an adorable note from your baby about their miraculous development, as well as the amazing changes occurring within you. Then you are invited to use an uplifting birth affirmation and to respond to an introspective journaling prompt to document your feelings, curiosities, and wonders every single week. With room to memorialize your own birth story, this book will become a memory keeper and a legacy gift for your baby. You are encouraged to read one of my favorite birth stories each week filled with childbirth education, tidbits, and explanations of important medical terms and procedures. These are real-life accounts shared with permission from the births that I've attended during my career as a doula, and I gave you a great mix. In the 42-week guide to your pregnancy and 42 birth stories, seven of them end in cesarean section. About half are unmedicated and the other half are medicated deliveries. This is a judgment-free book. So take what you need from each element and leave the rest. Okay, are you ready to buy? I would love for you to go to birthstory.com and buy it directly from me. But I totally get it if you're an Amazon girl. You can head to amazon.com and just type in birthstorypregnancy 
and the book should pop up. I'll deliver it straight to your doorstep. And I would venture to say that you might be an audiobook kind of woman because you're listening to a podcast. So if you would prefer to listen to this book, then I have recorded it and it is available for download at audible.com or on your Audible app. Thank you for being part of the birth story community. I'm so excited for you to have this book in your hand once you've purchased it and it has arrived. I hope that you will give me your thoughts and feedback and don't forget to take a selfie with your book and post it on Instagram and tag at birthstorypodcast. Thank you for listening to the Birth Story Podcast. If you are tuning in for the first time, I want to encourage you to start at the beginning. I want you to go on a journey with me and allow me to be your virtual doula and teach you all the things along the way. So I'm just going to give you a couple highlights of some of the earlier podcast episodes if you are just now tuning in. So very first episode, episode one, you can learn all about me, who I am, why I became a doula, why it is I do what I do, and also my very own birth story with my second child, Jagger. Then I've interviewed some really cool CEOs. So episode three, Tori Jones is the CEO of Eshell Triangle, and she was also featured on Rachel Hollis's The Rise podcast. Episode seven was Rachel Coley, the CEO of Can Do Kiddo. She was just on Good Morning America. She's an incredible occupational therapist that teaches you how to play with your baby, and her birth stories are incredible. Episode 10 was one of my best friends, Amy, who had a VBAC in the car. We have done episodes on micro preemies. Episode 18, 21 on international adoption out of Uganda, 24 and 25. Oh, those episodes like get a box of tissues. They're on surrogacy and cancer. We've addressed hypnobirthing, fertility, really easy, joyful, uh, medicated births, really hard, long labors, medicated, unmedicated, everything in between. So I hope you'll start at the beginning. Let the Birth Story Podcast take you on a journey all the way through and enjoy this episode. And then remember to rewind all the way back to episode one. Thanks for tuning in. Nichelle Sublet, you guys, this is Mrs. North Carolina. I mean, it was incredible. I just felt like I was sitting in a room with a queen. There is so much to learn from this woman in her fertility journey and her platform. Oh, I just can't wait for you to hear right now from Mrs. North Carolina. Good morning, Nichelle. How are you? Doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And I'm so excited you're actually live in the studio today on the Birth Story Podcast. Thank you for being here. So anyone who's listening, this is Nichelle Sublet. And if you don't live in North Carolina, she was crowned Mrs. North Carolina. And we're here to talk today about her birth story, her life story, and as well, her platform with fertility. So, Nichelle, just kind of tell us all about who you are and how we can get in touch with you also. Oh, sure. Well, I am a Charlottean, just so that the audience knows. I moved here when I was in first grade and then moved back in 2010. At that point, I met my husband, which was wonderful. <laughs> We actually met through a mutual friend who thought that we would be a good match, and 
here we are. A now. good old hookup? Yes. I yes. love it. Okay, wait, where'd you go? So you were Oh, here. right. I'm where'd sorry. Where'd you go? Where'd you leave? <laughs> That's true. I kind of just skipped ahead. That's but right. Yes. So I went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Okay. Go Heels. And then I came back for a post-bac year because at the time I was pre-med, really thought I wanted to go to medical school and be an OBGYN, actually. But I changed gears went to Hampton University for a master's of medical science degree. Okay. And then I started working in pharmaceutical sales for Novartis, Hickory up to West Jefferson in North Carolina. And after that, I was working for a small financial firm doing marketing and outreach. And now I work for Atrium Health. I started out in community relations with behavioral health And that was very interesting, very different, because I didn't know a lot about behavioral health, but now I do. (laughs) And then the past five years, I've been with the physician liaison team with corporate communications, marketing, and outreach at Atrium Health. Okay, so for everyone that's listening, that's like, what is a physician liaison? Can you describe that profession a little bit? Sure. So Atrium Health is a huge system, as everyone knows. And so we make a lot of the connections between the primary care docs and the specialists. So we really need primary care physicians to know what services are out there, what specialists are out there, and who they can refer their patients to. So we are making those basically face-to-face connections through luncheons, dinners, breakfasts, also bringing that specialist to the office to meet with those providers. So it's it's a lot of strategic development and growth for Atrium Health. Mm-hmm. So everyone's working within the same system, but because it's so big, they don't necessarily all know each other and aren't, you know, best friends exactly. for referrals. And so we're going to get into your platform from Mrs. North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And before we do that, though, I see like this obvious tie to fertility, mm-hmm. right, in primary yes. care because so many young women have never been to a gynecologist before. They just have a primary care physician's assistant or a physician or maybe their nurse practitioner at their university. And it might be many years before someone actually goes to a gynecologist because our primary care providers usually can do our routine gynecological exams. And so I sort of love the role that you're in Mm -hmm. and maybe that ability to be able to tie primary care to OBGYNs, but as well as like the fertility specialists in your role. So you've really, you've got a very full circle platform. It's pretty cool. Thank you. Yeah. I love how it all ties together. Yeah. Okay. So I have a million questions and we're going to get to your birth story. Okay. Um, That is pretty robust, but I want to talk first to our audience about like how how did you become Mrs. North Carolina? <laughs> I mean this is this is a pretty cool thing. Mm-hmm. So did you grow up in the pageant world? I mean, how did this happen? Actually, I didn't. I never did pageants as a child. I was a gymnast and I played field hockey. I used to dive ran track. So I did a lot of sports and then I became a cheerleader and then I cheered it. Chapel Hill as well. So again, go heels. But no, I never did pageants. I had friends who were in pageants and was always really impressed. But I felt like I was too short. And I always heard that pageant queens were super tall. And How tall are you? I'm 5'3", so okay. not tall. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a really good friend who was Mrs. Georgia about three years ago or 
well, longer than that, actually, through the Mrs. America system. And she kept telling me how she thought that I would be really good for Mrs. North Carolina and that I should try it. And every summer I kept saying, well, no, I can't do it because I'm going to be pregnant or I'm doing another fertility treatment. And I kept putting it off. But eventually I decided to go ahead and try it and thought, what do I have to lose? It'll be something new, something different. I wasn't pregnant anyway, so why not do something with my time that can make an impact to other people? So this is where some of our stories are crossing, too. So you had a healthy curiosity, clearly, about this pageant. Mm -hmm. You were adjacent with some friends. But at this point, I'm assuming then you were already married to your husband and were thinking about or trying to have a baby. So let's reverse in that story just a little bit. So you had graduated, you had had these jobs, and then how did you meet your husband? Where did he come into the picture? What's his name? His name is Harold, (laughs) and we met through a mutual friend. So Harold and this mutual friend were in a date auction together, and I wasn't actually at the date auction, but I was looking through the pamphlet and thought, wait, who is this guy? Like, he's really cute. We're about the same age. It seemed like he was really intelligent based on his bio. And I asked my friend if he could hook us up. So did you say like I want to bid on him? <laughs> no, because I wasn't at the okay. I wasn't at the auction. I'd be like, can you bid from afar? Like make sure no other girls are bidding, right? I know. Or guys. Or guys, <laughs> yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, it was it was pretty funny though how that happened. Okay. Yeah. So they so this person, this mutual mm-hmm. friend, like, and was it a blind date? Sort of. So he told us to go to the Sunset Club, okay. which doesn't even exist anymore. Oh, I remember it. Do you remember it? Okay. <laughs> and he said, oh, if you guys don't like each other, it's fine because there's lots of people there. There's a party going on. It's not, there's no pressure, basically. So we both like that idea of just being able to meet that way. And we really hit it off. We talked a lot that night and... The next day, we actually went to a pool party together and sat in a jacuzzi and talked for like three hours and kind of the rest is history. Oh my God, your blood pressure was probably so low. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, probably. I'm like in and out of that like jacuzzi tub. (laughs) So what year was that? That was in 2010. Okay, in 2010. And then when did you get married? We got married in 2013. Okay, so that's a healthy dating uh, like like foundation right there of three so. three years. Mine yeah. was like six six months. Oh we wow! We like met in August of 2012 and then got married in April of 2013. So whoa! Oh, we got married in April of 2013. Oh, okay, April seventeenth. So awesome! There you go. <laughs> Yay! See, we're we're having all these parallels. Mm-hmm. This is very interesting. Mm-hmm. So you guys got married three years later. Yes, and then in dating life, we're how so. I think what's really important to know is how old were you when you got married? And Mm -hmm. then were you already thinking about and talking about having children? Okay. Yes. So when we got married, I was 30 years old. Okay. And so was Harold. We were talking about having children. I think he was more interested in being married a couple years and then starting to try to have children, whereas I was gunning for children from day one because... For whatever reason, and maybe because my mom had me at 28 and that was just kind of the standard, I thought, oh, I'm already 
super old. So we need to get started right away. So little did I know I really wasn't old, but I just felt that way at the time. I definitely believe in the biological clock. Like I can remember being 30 years old and I wasn't married and I didn't, wasn't in a serious relationship. I was much older to this process. Uh And I just remember like, it was like a light switch went on. I mean, I had just gone through my twenties and was like, everything's, I'm like, everything is awesome. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. sorry, I love that song. Like, (laughs) you know, you're not really thinking about much serious and then it, it was like, oh God, I turned 30. I'm like, I've, I'm never going to have kids. I've got to like get married. You know, something happened. And mm-hmm. so I can only imagine what that feeling would be like if I had been in a committed relationship that I knew was ultimately going to lead to hopefully a family when that biological clock kicked in. And yes. that's different for everyone, but it sounds like yours was right around that 30-year-old mark. Yes, absolutely. I grew up thinking I was going to get married at 26 and have kids by 30 and actually be finished having kids by 30. So this was just a totally different situation that I was in. So you were like, Harold, let's go. (laughs) And he was like, pump the brakes. And then you eventually must have come to terms with, okay, let's, let's do this. We did. I mean, he was totally on board with me getting off the pill when we got back from our honeymoon and just pretty much seeing what happens. So I'm sure you've heard it a hundred times. We weren't trying, but we weren't not trying. (laughs) But my very type A personality after a few months was starting to get worried. Like, what's going on? We're not that old. So I wanted to go see my OBGYN and talk to her about why weren't we getting pregnant? So we got married in April. I think it was October that we made a first appointment with her. And she diagnosed me with PCOS polycystic ovary syndrome. And at that point, she said we should get on Clomid. Okay. So we got on Clomid for two months. And the second month I got pregnant and we thought, oh, wow, like this wasn't that hard. As soon as I ovulated, bam, I was pregnant. This wasn't bad at all. But unfortunately, we lost that pregnancy at eight weeks. I'm going to pause you because... There was so much there that Mm -hmm. I want to unpack, and I don't want to breeze through any of what you just said. Sure. Um, When we say we're trying but not trying, that's sometimes I feel like this like cover up that we do. Like really, really, we're trying. We're hoping at least. Yes. We not be. We might not be trying, but we're hoping. We're probably having sex with our partner more than feels natural. Yes. Because there's a little bit of hope and anticipation and fun there, and then not discounting from April until October. Every single month when your period arrives, when you're trying, not trying. Mm-hmm. And then kind of that range of emotions that you fall into, right? Like I remember very clearly what it's like to get your period when you're not expecting, you know, a period. Right. And thankfully, my fertility journey was short. Mm -hmm. I was able to take hormones from October of one year, I don't even remember, and then was able to get pregnant July the next year, right? So it was a relatively short solvable solution. Mm -hmm. But remembering what it was like to either not get my period and think I was pregnant. Yes. And then just find out it was because I didn't ovulate. Great. I've been there many times. (laughs) Yeah. So I want to just like, first of all, it's very important for anyone listening, like 
April to October is a short timeline from a medical perspective, right? Mm-hmm. But from a type A Michelle who's like, that's you are quick to go to the doctor. Oh, and yes. so first of all, high five you for that. Thank you. Because people are told to wait a year. And I'm like, I'm so on my, like, I don't even have this platform, but my platform is like, no, a year is way, way, way too long. I don't care if you're 20 years old or you're 30 years old or 40 years old. Absolutely. And I'm not a doctor, but a year is too long, right? Like, so I feel like you appropriately went to the doctor, you know, pretty soon. Mm -hmm. But PCOS, I mean, this is a big diagnosis, polycystic ovarian syndrome. Yes. Or polycystic ovary syndrome. It's used, uh, both terms are used interchangeably. Did you have symptoms? I mean, how did we get to PCOS? Well, there were a few symptoms. So if we rewind back to when I was 19 at Carolina cheerleading, there was probably nine or 10 months where I didn't have a period. And I thought it was strange But when I went to student services, student health services, one of the nurse practitioners mentioned, well, maybe you have PCOS, which when I talked to a few other doctors, they thought that was ridiculous. Oh, no, like you don't have the symptoms. You don't have the male pattern hair growth or the obesity. But what I did have was the missed periods. And then I had other doctors, you know, telling me, well, it's because you're a cheerleader, you're an athlete. You just don't have enough body fat. So there were signs. It's so commonly told to athletes over and over and over again. So many of my fertility clients are runners, uh, right? Yes. And they're told over and over again that they're just not ovulating or having a period because they are running. Yes. You know, Uh, and that could be true. That Mm -hmm. does happen, right? Like, but both things can be going on. Like you can Mm -hmm. be a cheerleader for Chapel Hill and have PCOS. You can be a marathon runner and have PCOS. Right. Right. They're not mutually exclusive. Exclusive. Yeah. Yeah. But at the time, no one offered to help dig in deeper. No. I mean, and at that point I just dismissed it and thought, okay, well, if that's what they're telling me, then I probably don't have it because I don't have the classic symptoms. symptoms. Did they put you on anything like birth control to try to induce you ovulating or or having a period? Yes. So then I went through a series of years where I was kind of on and off birth control. So when I was on birth control, of course, I had the bleed every month. But then each time I went off, it would just get really wonky. Like maybe I would miss a few months here or there. But then when I did get a period, it wasn't necessarily heavy, but I had like the worst cramps in the world and had to be put on hydrocodone, like for the pain. Right. And that should have been a red flag. Yes. Right there. Yes, you yeah. would think. So, no, I mean, really, 19 to 30, that's yeah. when I'm finally diagnosed with this. And it was through ultrasound, blood work. Yeah, ultrasound okay. and blood work. So I love this because you go in, you're 30 years old, you're a married woman, mm-hmm. and you're like, hey, I've only been trying for six months. And they hear you. Yes. They listen to you. Yes. Did you go, wh- where were you at? So at the time, I went to Midtown Gynecology, which isn't okay. open anymore, but they're Novant-owned. But, but you went to just your gynecologist. You weren't like at a specialist yet. Yes, but okay. I will say my gynecologist and my mother are very good friends. Well, she was my gynecologist. Okay. She's not anymore. 
So I almost feel like I was taken more seriously because we had a, a relationship outside of okay. Just and your mom doctor. was like, "I need a grandbaby," <laughs> you know, "I need a grandbaby." Well, she <laughs> she didn't say too much actually. She was kind of at this point we weren't even talking to anybody about okay. what we were doing or our plans. Okay. And my mom, no, okay, so that was not going. On. No, that wasn't going on. But thank there God. was a, there was a relationship and a connection there, though. I, I just want to highlight this because I know that there are women out there that are going to be listening that went to an appointment and they said come back in another six months and they didn't feel like they had been heard yes. or taken seriously. So if there's something that like Nichelle and I can leave with you today, it's you know advocate for, for yourself. yourself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely advocate for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that she did do all the testing and said, let's look into this because otherwise I probably would have said, oh, well, you're telling me come back in six months. We'll wait another six months. I mean, people just listen to whatever their doctor tells them. Yeah. So what were the tests? So there was one for FSH, which follicle stimulating hormone. Mm -hmm. I know there was one for ovarian reserve. Mm -hmm. Ovulation was checked and... I was told, no, you're not ovulating. So they check it at day three, I guess. You have your period, and then on day three, they check to see what your level is. My level was never at the ovulation point. And were they looking with ultrasound also? Yes. Yeah, okay, for those follicles and for that ovulation. So this is done usually side by side with blood work and ultrasound. Yes, so exactly, both in conjunction. And she said there were these chocolate chips looking things on my ovaries that we could see and that those were the little cysts or the, yeah, Mm -hmm. so the cysts. And again, I'm not a doctor, but- So on one ovary or both? (laughs) On both. On both, okay. I had lots of chocolate chips. Lots of chocolate chips, okay. So then, so you get this diagnosis and for this, is this relieving to you or is this like a terrible diagnosis? Does that make sense? Like at that moment, did you feel like, oh, there's a reason I didn't get- pregnant for six months? Or were you like, oh no, this is going to be a long journey? I pretty much fell apart in the doctor's office crying. She's telling me it's going to be okay. All you need is some Clomid. Like you are going to have a baby. But for me, it did feel like a really bad diagnosis. Okay. Yeah. Like your gut intuition was like, this isn't good. Right. Okay. So then she puts you on Clomid. Mm -hmm. How did Clomid make you feel? So I was one of those people that actually did not feel crazy on Clomid. I know that everyone (laughs) says that they felt crazy. I had horrible hot flashes. So that was really my only side effect. And you just take it, not just, but you take it five days in the month. And then you have intercourse, I think, every other day, she told us, Mm -hmm. during certain days. And so honestly, like, I didn't find it to be that terrible. Yeah. This is really important what you just said, though, is one of the number one causes of infertility is not having enough sex. Like you mm, you would never right. believe it, right? But you go and like, it's like, oh, but we had sex on this day, like the cow, you know. But over and over again, the data shows that having sex every other day, right before, during, and then afterwards. So, you know, We never exactly know if you're not being tracked with ultrasound and blood work um, or your temperature or whatever people are doing. But one of the things that if you're just at home right now and you're maybe a month into this is making sure that you're having enough sex. Yes. And every other day. 
And I don't exactly remember. It had something to do with the motility of the sperm. Exactly. <laughs> Giving them time to regenerate yeah. or something like that. <laughs> Maybe I'll put it in the show notes. But it was definitely male factor, you know, every other day. Yes. So that brings me to also like very quickly, you had a female factor infertility diagnosis. But did they just land just at that? Or did Harold go and also get checked to make sure that there wasn't also a a male factor infertility simultaneously occurring. So Harold had a semen analysis, which she recommended, and everything came back glowing, which, of course, makes me feel like dirt, you know? (laughs) Like, oh, great. My husband's perfect. (laughs) Exactly. He was in a brochure (laughs) in an auction. Not to discount that you're Mrs. North Carolina. Right. I know. But I I can totally hear you know, that that would be a really frustrating feeling. It was. And then making sure that you don't think that your partner is looking at you differently. Exactly. You know? I'm thinking, well, now are you looking at me sideways because everything came back perfect on your end? So it was a good thing and a bad thing. Like, of course, you don't want to have female and male infertility, but it still made me feel like, oh, you know, kind of less of a woman that I had this weird thing going on with my body that I didn't know about. Yeah. So they put you on Clomid for five days. You had these hot flashes. Yes. And then you got pregnant. The second month, not the first month. Okay. But the second month. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I know that you just mentioned that this pregnancy resulted in a loss of that baby at eight weeks. But I want to talk about the joyful part of that. So tell me what it was like to find out that you were pregnant for the very first time. It was absolutely amazing. Like I'm getting chills right now thinking Mm -hmm. about it. And I was planning how I was going to tell Harold because I had taken a pregnancy test that morning because something just felt a little off. I think I had sore breasts. And I didn't want to call him. I mean, he was at work. So I waited until he got home. And then I pulled out the pregnancy test and was like, oh my gosh, we're pregnant. And I mean, it was, we were on cloud nine for a while. Well, at least I was. I mean, I think he was too. But just the fact of telling him you're going to be a daddy was just a beautiful moment. Yeah. And then did you go back to your doctor for a confirmation appointment? Yes. So at that point, I called the office and told them I'd taken a home pregnancy test. And then they had me come in actually that day. So before I even told Harold, I had to go in and get blood work done. And they confirmed it. And then I had to go back 48 hours later to see if it was appropriately rising. And then she did one more check and said, okay, it's appropriately rising. Everything looks great. Come in in a week. And then that next week was when they did blood work again and it was going down, was going the opposite way. And I was frankly shocked. I mean, I thought the hardest part was going to be getting pregnant. Never in my wildest dreams did I ever think I would ever have a miscarriage. So that was just it just blew my mind. I didn't even know about people who had had miscarriages. Like it was something kind of foggy in my mind. Like, oh, I think when I was eight, my mom was telling me about somebody who had a miscarriage. Other than that, I just didn't have any type of context for that. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that first miscarriage, if you don't mind that I, if I ask that question, but sure. um, so your levels were going down, but I, I presume that you weren't having a miscarriage. No, I, 
Yeah. So she told me my levels were going down and that it didn't look good. But a part of me felt like, oh, well, that's probably just some random blip. Like, I'm sure everything's fine. Right. And so when I went back in and they checked them yet again and they were still going down, then I started to think, okay, this is real and I can't believe this is happening. How can it be at the time, so hard to get pregnant and so hard now to stay pregnant. And I had all the symptoms of pregnancy. I was extremely nauseous and had tender breasts and I I had everything, so I had no idea. But she did tell us to come in for a first ultrasound at some point. And so at about eight weeks, that's when we went in and there was no heartbeat. So could you see the you could see the gestational sac, yeah, and you yeah. could see a fetal pole, but... Okay. But it hadn't mm. continued to develop after those first couple of weeks. Right. And I'm she had so us come sorry. back in again as well and look at it and because she yeah. said, well, let's wait again and, and see if maybe a heartbeat will come. She thought we were far enough that there should have already been one there, but let's just check. And once again, there wasn't. So um, unfortunately, yeah, it didn't work out. So around eight weeks, I guess you had to come to terms with the fact that 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 child was not going to be continuing on with you at that point. Exactly. Did they give you an option to of what to do, like to allow your body to miscarry? Like, did they say what would happen, what happens now? She did give an option. She said that some people will wait it out but that that could potentially be three to four more weeks. And I just wasn't mentally capable of doing that at that point, knowing Mm -hmm. that the child I was carrying was no longer living or maybe never was living. It just was too much for me. And so she recommended to do a DNC. Okay. And that's what we did on January 14th. I remember the day. It's like you never forget these dates. Mm -hmm. And that was 2014. Okay. Yeah. So at the DNC, can you just walk? I haven't had anyone talk yet about their DNC on oh, the podcast. Okay. Sure. Could do you mind sharing no, what that process know. was like for you? So the process of a DNC, you basically make the appointment. Generally, they can get you in within a day or two, which is really nice when you're just wanting to have some closure and kind of be finished with this chapter in a way. Yeah. So you go in, you are under IV sedation, so you don't remember anything really. I think the worst part to me, I've now had three, is waking up okay. from it and just, oh, I'm getting emotional, but just realizing that you're no longer pregnant. Yeah. You wake up and you're just in some room with a nurse and, you know, she's holding your hand and you know that everything's over now. So it's very difficult. And it takes a long time, at least for me, for like my body to get back to its normal state. So at least a couple weeks that I still felt weak and just things like needing a lot of Miralax, things like that. And even being able to go back to working out and everything, that takes a while. And I really love working out and exercising. So that was always tough. And of course, just the emotional 
baggage. Oh, and let's not forget bleeding for a couple months, even sometimes. Okay. Yeah. And a lot of times after a DNC, it can take a long time for your period to come back. Or maybe it's just after miscarriage in general. I'm not really sure. But it can take a while. And for me, it always seemed to take about three months for me to get another period and even be able to try again, whether it was naturally or with a fertility treatment. So yeah, it's, it's rough. I don't, I don't recommend it. I'm so sorry. Thank you. The good thing about a DNC though, I will say is you can have the baby tested to see if there was a chromosomal abnormality and with this baby, who was a girl, there was a there were t- actually there were three or four chromosomal abnormalities that they were able to find, and so that was gave a little bit of peace and closure, knowing that this baby girl wasn't going to be born healthy and wasn't going to be able to live. So basically, her conditions weren't compatible with life, and so that gave me some peace, knowing what why would I carry a pregnancy full term and then maybe lose the child then. So it gave a little bit of peace in that moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have some clients that I've worked with that have told me that they felt like this was nature's way or God's way of, you know, Mm -hmm. it's heartache no matter when it happens. Absolutely. It is. So... I don't want to, I'm like, I'm crying with you. I know, I'm sorry. I was I like, I'm crying with you. Think so I was going to get wanna, emotional. I was going to say, I don't want to make you rehash too deeply the next five years yeah. after this. So, because there are a lot of joyful things that happen over the next five years. So For you, sure. you have mentioned just high level that this story continued on through five pregnancies. Yes. And five losses. Yes. All similar gestations? Mostly similar. I know two losses were at about six and a half, seven weeks. I had one loss that went really far to me. It was 11 weeks. Okay. And then one was a chemical pregnancy. Okay. So about 72 hours. Okay. So one you... You said you had three DNCs, so then two natural. So the one that was natural, the chemical pregnancy, it was more like a a heavy period that ended up happening. And then one of them, I chose to take a drug called misoprosol. Mm -hmm. So basically, I think it it makes your uterus contract and makes you have the miscarriage. So yeah, and that was extremely painful, I will say. Like, yeah. 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 A it's, really bad night. Yeah. It's very interesting because that drug is a prostaglandin. It's a hormone. I'm assuming they inserted it vaginally. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's also a drug that's used to induce labor because it's so powerful at um, kind of effacing and thinning the cervix and causing uterine contractions. Mm-hmm. So that they use it. In both sides of yeah, the story. Yeah, that, that's so, what I found out, which the, is very interesting. The reason that I think it's really important is because I think anyone who has taken that drug, I think uh, if there's any midwives or OBGYNs that are listening to this, I think it's really important is that when you're using a drug like Cervidil or Cytotec or some of the brand names to help 
a miscarriage along. And then someone later goes on on their fertility journey and is pregnant and they've now hit 41 weeks or, you know, whatever it is. And they Mm -hmm. want to induce. Please don't induce with that medication. (laughs) Which is actually what happened to me. It did. But I don't okay, want to give away the story yet. Okay. But well, I didn't even know that. And yeah. so here's, you know, sometimes ex- I just use my big fat mouth. No, no, that's exactly that. what happened. Um, because one of the things we wanted to talk about on the show when we get to your birth story is kind of like PTSD about miscarriages. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of is gonna is gonna tie into that story. But over the next five years, this was a very hard fertility journey for you. But Yes. It sounds like there was also a lot of joyful things happening to you personally and professionally. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I don't want to, like, I just don't want to skim over that. Yeah. So you're going through this really hard thing mm-hmm. over and over again. Mm-hmm. But somehow you rise. Like, you get up, you rise. Mm-hmm. I don't even know you. I don't even know all your story. Yeah. But, like, I know that you 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 rose so much that you did this thing that, like, no one can even think about doing, <laughs> which is, number one, being vocal and mm-hmm. talking and sharing and not living in shame, right? Or that little voice inside of you that had said to you, like, oh, my body should be doing something it's not doing. Like, you, like pushed all of that negative talk away and like rose and then took it to the masses. I tried. Yeah. Hey, it's Heidi. I'm interrupting the podcast to let you know about a free resource that I've created for you at birthstory.com. All you have to do is go to birthstory.com and then click the tab that says the workbook. Once you put your email address in, an entire resource library of all of my secret sauces are available to you for free as my thank you for listening to the Birth Story podcast and being part of this community. At birthstory.com, under the workbook, you will find a birth plan template, articles on circumcision, delayed cord clamping, flipping a breech baby, packing your hospital bag, acupressure points, placenta encapsulation, and so much more. There are over 20 free articles ready for you to download at birthstory.com. Now let's get back to this amazing episode. Okay. So I want to, like, you had this friend that was Miss Georgia or Mm -hmm. Mrs. Georgia, I don't know. And, and she was like, you should do this thing. So, yeah. So, so what happened? Yes. So my journey to Mrs. North Carolina started because a good friend of mine was Mrs. Georgia, and she kept encouraging me to do the pageant. She thought that I would be a good fit. And I thought, I have no idea what I'm doing. Like, that was my first thought is, how am I going to do a pageant? I've never done a pageant. The other thing was I always thought, oh, well, I can't participate right now because I'm either going to be pregnant or going through a fertility treatment. And so that doesn't go with pageants. So basically what I did was hired a pageant coach who came highly recommended. That's a thing. I didn't even know that. That is a thing. I just wanted to be prepared for all of it. Swimsuit, there's evening gown and interview. And I really wanted to make sure that I knew what I was doing. It's a very expensive endeavor. So you don't want to just kind of fly by night. So I did a lot of research. I tried to prepare as much as possible, doing YouTube tutorials and talking to other women who have done pageants their entire lives. 
And that's how I ended up doing Mrs. North Carolina. I will say I almost quit though, because so after I applied and got accepted to participate and become a contestant, I ended up finding out I was pregnant again. And this was the fifth pregnancy that I had that didn't work out. Right before the pageant, I had a miscarriage and didn't know if emotionally I could handle it. But I remember the day, it was October 12, 2017. I said, no, I'm doing this. This pageant is in November. I've already started the process. I've already been accepted. And I can't just keep sitting in this negativity and just all the tears and all the depression. I just wanted to turn things around at the end of 2017. So I decided to still go for it and do it. Okay. So you were literally spent four four years in this fertility journey. I don't even know what to call it. A journey? A journey. journey. Anything from the Clomid, Letrozole, IUIs, IVF, egg retrievals, transfers, natural pregnancies. Went through all of that. All of it. And in the middle of this, you're like, okay, I'm going to do this extremely difficult thing and di- and pour into it. It sounded like it's to me that like this is something that you needed to help kind of save you. Yes. You know? Absolutely. Which is amazing. Thank I mean, you. I just can't, I just literally I would be in a, curled up in a ball in my bed still. <laughs> Thank you. So, you're an incredible person. Thank you. So you you do this, you get accepted. You find out you're pregnant and then and then it Then I find out, yeah. So basically I get accepted. I'm on my way trying to figure things out and get ready for the pageant. Find out I'm pregnant. Shortly after, about six weeks later, find out I'm having a miscarriage. That time I had what was called an anembryonic sac, and that was from a natural pregnancy. So completely unplanned, had no idea, wasn't trying to get pregnant because I was getting ready for a pageant. So unfortunately, didn't work out and... I just decided that time I wasn't going to sit in it. I just, I wanted to move forward and just take a break from all of it. So I don't know a lot about pageants. Well, I mean, I showed up today in a sweatshirt, you know, and I haven't shaved my, I don't shave my legs in the wintertime. You're fine. I get it. (laughs) I'm like, so no surprise. I don't know a lot about pageants, (laughs) but what I do know from like, you know, being a little girl and like kind of watching something with my mom Mm -hmm. is that, and probably the most interesting to me, the girl who shows up in the like sweatshirt over here though, was hearing each of the women speak Mm -hmm. um, and be interviewed. Mm -hmm. Like, I know that for me, that was always the most, and you could be the most beautiful woman in the entire world. Mm -hmm. But like, I was just always mesmerized by what these people had to say. And so was part of the coaching for you coming up with your platform or was that just obvious to you that this was going to be your platform was talking about fertility? My platform wasn't obvious to me at the time because at the time I still wasn't out and open with what we were going through, except with really close friends and some family. Okay. So for me, I was excited, but also terrified when I started talking through things with my pageant coach. And he said, well, of course, that's your platform. I mean, what, what are we talking about here? Of course. I was terrified because, again, this was like this big shameful secret in my mind that, oh, I kept losing babies and that I couldn't have a baby. 
I just, I didn't feel like it was something that I could share publicly. But the moment that I won, I remember clearly feeling, oh, this is absolutely why this has happened. This is why I've won this pageant right now, is I have to put a face and a name and I have to put a story out about my fertility journey. Like, it's just, it's... Yeah, you have to, and you did. Thank you. Yeah, so... And it's changing people's lives and it's going to continue to change people's lives because this is something that we have to keep talking about, Mm -hmm. that it is so normal. It is. You know, it's so normal. I mean, for me, because I wasn't sharing, I didn't know how normal it was. I didn't know, oh, one in four women or even women in my own family who had had miscarriages or friends. It just wasn't coming out. But once I became vocal and started sharing, especially on social media and just talking to people, then so many women came to me with their stories. And I realized I wasn't alone at all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We need like a similar, like the Me Too on a different, you know, a different hashtag like that. Absolutely. Yeah. But I I do want you to talk a little bit about your hashtag that you created for Mm -hmm. your platform. Mm -hmm. Um, So just So go, let's just do it right now. Okay. So hashtag start asking is encouraging young women, women in their 20s, basically to go to their doctors and ask for a fertility assessment long before they're actually ready to start trying to have children. Because I think we check for everything else, blood pressure. There's all these different screenings that we get, but we don't have a screening for fertility that's widespread. Basically, if you've been trying for less than six months and you're over 35, they say, go to a doctor. If you're under 35, then they want you to try for a year. Let's just take that off the table. (laughs) (laughs) I can't. I was like, I just can't. No, let's just change. I don't care what the guidelines are. Yeah. I I mean, if you've been trying to get pregnant for six months and you're not pregnant please go. Right. See a doctor because you never know. And like you said, with the biological clock, you're just getting older by each month. You know, everything's getting older. Your eggs, your uterus, well, your uterus. But anyway, point being, please go see your doctor prior to actually wanting to try to have kids. That's my main goal. And if you're a parent, encourage your daughters early on even if they're going to the OBGYN because they're trying to get birth control to not get pregnant, Mm -hmm. you know, through their, I don't even know, high school and college years or whatever it might be for your particular child. But it's never too early, you know, to say like, okay, well, what birth control pill should we be going on? Is there any underlying disease here? Mm-hmm. Like, we just need to start looking a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. I, as a doula, get hired very early on in pregnancy, so early on, that it's important to me in my awareness that my some people are surprised by my contract, mm-hmm. that my contract says there's a full refund If there's a loss at any time. Mm -hmm. And that's because one in four women that hire me early, they will lose that pregnancy. Yes. And we don't do enough talking about it, right? Like I'm so excited with them Mm -hmm. when they call to share with me that they have just found out they're pregnant and they know they want a doula and I am ready to jump on board and be on that journey with them. Definitely. But 
I know, I know that one in four of them are going to have a miscarriage Mm -hmm. and it's very difficult. Yeah. It's the reality, unfortunately, but it's so difficult. And when you don't know other people who have been through it because maybe they're ashamed and they're not talking about it or they're silent, then it just creates more isolation, I would say. Yeah. And I just, before we get into your birth story though, Mm -hmm. which we're very close to, I just want to say thank you for sharing some of the details because we also say things like miscarriage pretty flippantly, yes. but we don't really elaborate on like, what does that mean? What did that feel like? Yes. What was that experience like? Um, it's so much more than I had a miscarriage. And so mm-hmm. I really feel like just talking to you today got a little bit fuller of a picture of what that looks like. Um, so as we transition into... Mm-hmm. Oh, can I say one thing oh, yeah. about miscarriage? Yeah. I was going to say, as a child, my perception of miscarriage was that you would start bleeding overnight and there would be just uh, all this blood in the bed. I didn't realize that miscarriages happen different ways. And I think that's something we don't talk about, that everyone can have a different type of miscarriage. My miscarriages were always going in looking at an ultrasound and being told, I'm sorry, there's no longer a heartbeat or I'm sorry, there is no heartbeat. And then having to decide what to do. So I just wanted to put that in there that there's different ways that it happens. And I was completely caught off guard when they told me that very first time because I'm thinking, oh, but I'm not bleeding. I don't have any signs of a miscarriage. What what do you mean? I didn't realize that it could be diagnosed by hey, your numbers are going down and and now we don't see a fetal pole or now we don't see a heartbeat. Yeah. Thank you sure. for sharing that. Yeah. So in the Miss North Carolina pageant, your coach helped you to develop this platform and to be proud of it and to be able to speak your truth. Yes. And so how was that received? It was received with so much love and care and admiration and people cheering me on. I felt like the first time I posted something on social media about what we have been going through, it was right after I won Mrs. North Carolina. And that's when I said, okay, like this is the day. I'm going to put it out there. I'm going to be transparent. And right after I clicked (laughs) post, I felt like I was running around naked. Like, wow, everybody knows all my flaws. They know that this marriage isn't perfect. They know that I've lost babies. Like this is, this is scary. But what followed was just a community like wrapping their arms around me in support. I was able to take the biggest breath of my life. Like, wow, like this is finally out. I don't have to hide it anymore. I don't have to make up stories. When people ask me, when are you having kids? I don't have to lie about it. So it was actually really refreshing and it healed me. It healed me to hear from other women, to be able to meet them for coffee, lunch, chat on email, you know, just to help other women get through this. And at the same time, I was getting through it because I always knew I was going to share my story. I just thought it would be after I had a baby, like after everything was set and perfect and I had my 2.2 kids. I did not know I was going to be sharing it in the midst. In the middle of all that pain and grief. Well, while we're sitting here, I was actually going to pull up Amy Schumer's Instagram page. I don't know. We're recording this before this podcast is going to air. But yesterday, 
um, I was just scrolling through Instagram Mm -hmm. and Amy Schumer posted a picture of her belly and her C-section scar. And it says, I'm a week into IVF and I'm feeling really run down and emotional. If anyone went through it and if you have any advice or wouldn't mind sharing your experience with me, please do. My number is in my bio. We are freezing my eggs and figuring out what to do in order to give Jean a sibling. This was such a plea for help. Yes. I mean, she posted a phone number to, um, for people to call or send. I sent her a text message. Yeah. I she got it. But I did too. And I yeah. made a comment too on the post. Like it was so powerful. But like here I am right now. I mean, I'm sitting across from Mrs. North Carolina. We're on Instagram with the famous, the one of the most famous female comedians mm-hmm. in the world, Amy Schumer. And all that to say is that fertility, like it does not discriminate no. at all. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if you're rich. It doesn't matter if you're poor. It doesn't matter if you're famous. It doesn't matter if you're not famous. No. It doesn't matter if you're black. It doesn't matter if you're white. It doesn't matter if you're fat. It doesn't matter if you're skinny. I mean, like there's no like no boundaries. All women, all women are at risk mm-hmm. and are kind of in this together. Mm-hmm. And so like you're platform and your hashtag for raising awareness earlier, it's like the most famous person I can think of, you know, is crying out for help right now. And you're a voice right now, this podcast right now, and your story Mm -hmm. is a voice for all of these people. So I just, there's, I'm just so proud of you for what you chose. Like, I can't even think of a more powerful platform. Thank you. And so when were you crowned Mrs.? North Carolina. So that was in November of 2017. November 11th. (laughs) November. Oh my gosh. 11, 11. There you go. November 11th. So a lucky day. Yes. You know, 2017. And then you've had the opportunity since then to kind of, you know, be a public figure and to have these conversations and to have this platform that you're using for such an amazing cause. Yes. And speaking of basically infertility knowing no limits, I feel like there's this misperception that women of color don't have infertility. So that was another reason that it was so important to me to get the message out and put a face with it because we do. And in fact, sometimes twice as much. I mean, certain studies have said. So yeah, yeah, it was very important to me. And and exactly why I asked you at the beginning of this podcast if you felt heard mm-hmm. too, because mm-hmm. there is something that's going on in this country too with unintentional, sometimes institutional racism and where women of color are not feeling heard. Yes, And so it's very important that we say like, no matter who you are, that like I believe that six month mark. Yes, you know, don't be put off, right? Mm-hmm. Like advocate for yourself if someone's not helping to advocate for you. Yes, I agree completely. So, Nichelle, your story—I know you wanted to tell your story mm-hmm. at this point, mm-hmm. right? And you ended up telling your story in the middle of your grief and your sadness. But right now, I get the opportunity to hear your story on the other side of that because you had a successful pregnancy and birth and you have a baby boy named Hudson. Yes. <laughs> and so how many months postpartum are you? Four. 
He just turned four months on oh Monday. <laughs> and anyone listening, you look good. Thank you. You got like your makeup on, <laughs> your body's back. Like you're doing great. Thank you. I'm trying. And yeah. mamas love to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, seriously, like I, I'm very impressed. Oh. Are you back to work? I am. So, yes. okay. That's early and that's hard. Too. Yes, definitely. So let's talk about Hudson. Did you get pregnant with IVF, IUI naturally? How did that uh, conception go? Hudson was frozen for two years. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. He was a little embryo and a little frozen embryo. So we had a frozen embryo transfer last December, December 13th, 2018. Okay. I know. Isn't it? All these dates are going to be there forever. Forever. Yeah. Forever. So you had five losses. Yes. Where was your headspace? Were you like prepared for another loss or were you like this time it's gonna, this is gonna be it? Like where was your, I guess more like your intuition? What was your intuition telling you? In a way, I didn't want to get too attached to a positive or negative outcome, I will say. We, I skipped this part. We had actually signed with a surrogacy agency that prior July Mm-hmm. And it was about a five to eight month wait, they said, to be matched with a gestational carrier. Our whole thought process behind that was we had these five embryos. We had done the PGS testing, which is pre genetic screening. And these embryos that we created were deemed normal. And I just wanted to give them the best chance at life. And even if it wasn't me being pregnant with them, I was just, I just wanted a baby. I just wanted our baby. I didn't care if I carried the baby or somebody else. I just wanted the baby to be born healthy. So at that point, we were, I I was between kind of two places of, do I want to do another transfer or not? So after the pageant ended, because everything ended with the pageant in 2018, like I was Mrs. North Carolina 2018, so it was a year, I just still felt this pull that I need to try a frozen embryo transfer one more time. I had tried two others. They were not successful. I just wanted to try one more time. But I went into it a lot more relaxed because I felt like, oh, well, you know, if it doesn't work out, we do have a gestational carrier on board. And so, hey, Let's let's just see what happens. And I always wanted to, I wanted to be able to say at the end, I did everything I could. I tried as hard as I could. And I had had this additional testing done in 2016 that determined that I needed an extra day of progesterone and oil. So not to get too in the weeds, but when you're doing a frozen embryo transfer, a few days before the transfer, you start taking progesterone and oil through a really long needle <laughs> that goes into your hip. It's actually super painful, <laughs> but it was determined that I needed an extra day. And I kept thinking, we kept thinking, my husband and I, what if that really is the answer? Like, let's at least give it a try and see if that was the problem. And of course, I'm so glad we did because maybe that was the problem. They, you know, my doctor was able to change up my protocol, add in that extra day of progesterone. And we changed some other things with my protocol as well. But I'm just so happy that I did, that I tried it that one last time. So this ended up being your answer. Yes. And tell me, how did your pregnancy go? Well, I'm not going to lie. The pregnancy was difficult. It was... 
It was full of anxiety because there is PTSD after you've had a miscarriage. And I'd had five and I'd been through years of getting my hopes up only for them to be let down. So honestly, each appointment was just filled with a lot of anxiety and just not wanting to hear those words that there's no longer a heartbeat. When you go in for a prenatal appointment, the doctor always wants to talk first. And I always just wanted them to put that machine on that fetal heart monitor, like as soon as possible, just, just let me know there's still a heartbeat. Like the first few appointments were really difficult because I would cry pretty much until we heard that heartbeat. I would just get so nervous And I had all the pregnancy symptoms. Like, it was kind of like I went from one thing to the next, not to complain, but I had just the extreme nausea, extreme tiredness. Then I ended up with acid reflux and carpal tunnel syndrome and stomach aches and having to sit up, (laughs) sit halfway up overnight, every night. Like, I I had to sleep Sleep kind of elevated, basically. Yeah, inverted. So I had all the symptoms, all the swelling. I wasn't like, oh my gosh, like I've got that pregnancy glow. No, I had all the acne. I mean, it just, (laughs) pregnancy was really hard, but I kept, I tried to keep my mind focused on the end goal, which was healthy baby, healthy mom, healthy baby, healthy mom. And that's what got me through. (laughs) So I know nothing about your birth story. Okay. <laughs> I think people listening to the podcast know I don't like to know in advance like what kind of happened. So I have no idea any part of your story. And so I want to hear like, did you go into labor naturally? No, no, okay. not at all. So my entire pregnancy, I kept hearing, oh, he's so big. Oh, your belly's so big. There's no way you're going to go to your due, your due date, which was August 30th. No way. We get to August 30th, there's no baby. (laughs) So we're still waiting. My doctor and I discussed a plan that I would be induced if he wasn't here by September 3rd. Okay. September 3rd came and went. Okay. (laughs) They scheduled my induction for September 4th. Okay. So that's when I went in. Size of the baby being the reason for induction? Well, I was told by my doctor that he didn't want me to go past 41 weeks. Okay. September 4th actually was 40 weeks, five days. Okay. But and you have a very accurate due date when you do IVF. Exactly. Like to the day. Like, this is exactly <laughs> 40 weeks and five days. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and he told me the baby would probably be between seven and a half and eight pounds. Okay. And I'm thinking eight pounds isn't coming out of me. And you're like, little. What? <laughs> you know, you're five three, but you're also very, very petite. And is your husband, Harold, not petite? He's not petite. He's close, about 6'1", six, 6'2". Six, okay, that's not petite. Right. <laughs> so. And did you know you were carrying a boy? Yes. Okay, so, okay. So, yeah, so they were like, okay, we're getting close to that 41-week mark, and you're probably carrying a bigger boy. Yes. For your petite body. So we need to go ahead so and induce. Do. Okay. <laughs> right. And so did they bring you in at night or did they bring you in in the morning? At night. At we night. checked in, I think at about eight o'clock that night. Okay. And shortly after we started the induction process, which was a Foley ball, mm-hmm. but I was not dilated at all. Okay. So even inserting the Foley ball was just excruciatingly painful. And that night, 
contractions started and I thought we were getting somewhere, but in the morning, it turns out that I still had only dilated or I had only dilated one centimeter. Okay. So, and the balloon was still in. Yeah. Okay. Cause that would typically fall out if you reached five centimeters, Mm. but they don't like to keep it in longer than 12 hours. So they'll usually remove it. Like if it hasn't fallen out, and that's what they did so, after 12 hours. They so removed it. They removed it. You were at basically not dilated at one centimeter. Right. So Body wasn't ready. Definitely not ready. But they kept saying that the baby was doing great and that he was his heart rate was very stable. So then they wanted to do Pitocin. I was on Pitocin for about seven hours and did not feel anything. Like didn't feel any contractions, didn't feel any pain. I was having still Braxton Hicks. But the night of the Foley Bowl, I was in a lot of pain. So this was nice, just kind of having a break. But then at the end of that, I wasn't dilated past the centimeter. So every (laughs) half an hour, they go up on your Pitocin. You're continuously monitored. And then they get to the max dose of Pitocin, usually by 6 or 7 p.m. Mm -hmm. And you got to that max dose of Pitocin. You were not in labor. Not in labor at all. And so what did they decide to do? So then they said, you know what? You can have a break and you can go, not go, but you can have a regular dinner because I had been on fluids for that entire time. And then we're going to start you on Cytotech tonight. That was a trigger. I was going to say, I'm, I like randomly brought it up earlier, uh-huh. but that was a big trigger for you. Yeah, I yeah. was very scared about that. And I remembered that night that I'd taken it and they said, oh no, like your dose will be nothing like that or that would rupture your uterus. Like if we gave you the type of dose that we would give to somebody to have a miscarriage. So that made me feel a little bit better. I took that, it was oral. I ended up having pretty severe, severe to me, contractions overnight in the morning, they checked me again, one centimeter, but my water broke. Oh, okay. Now we're getting somewhere. Yeah. So okay. I'm, I'm excited thinking, oh, my water broke. Well, <laughs> again, it didn't mean anything. My doctor said I could go ahead and get an epidural. I was in a lot of pain. So I went ahead, got the epidural and then they started me on Pitocin again. It was kind of a last ditch effort. Although he did tell me, I think we're running up against a wall and usually the wall wins. Yeah. So after Pitocin for about three realistic hours. Realistic doctor. Yeah, very realistic. Yeah. I appreciated him just telling me the real deal. After about two and a half hours on the Pitocin, I still was only at a centimeter. So that's when they he told me that I needed to have a C-section, basically. Kind of, we had the, the talk. And I wasn't... I wasn't even really upset. I was just like, I just want to have this baby. Like by this point, it's Friday. Yeah. I've been there since Wednesday evening. Yeah. I just want to have a baby. Yeah. (laughs) So this is very important because when any of my clients go for an induction, if you're, I cannot stress this enough on the podcast. If your body is not ready, you will not go into labor. Mm -mm. Your cervix has to thin or a face the baby's head has to come down and apply pressure to the cervix. Sometimes it's just baby's positioning. Mm -hmm. On one day, an induction may fail. The next day, the induction might work because baby's turned a little bit and there's more uh, lower of a head applying pressure. Sometimes they'll do the C-section. They'll find out the baby was a little transverse or in kind of a position where they didn't tuck their head or, Mm -hmm. you know, something or whatever. But I cannot stress enough. People get scheduled their induction and they think they're going to have a baby that day. Yeah, that's what I thought. (laughs) And I have to tell all my clients, no, you probably are not going to have a baby today. 
we're going to do several days of like, it can be several days of cervical ripening. Yes. Many doses. Some women will have many doses of Cytotec or Cervidil. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they'll do the balloon. Sometimes they'll break the water. Like it's, you had kind of, you had all of these things, right? And then Pitocin twice. Yes. I've had moms that were induced for five days. Wow. Sometimes they ended up going into labor on their own. And then sometimes they had a C-section. Sometimes they went home. So they said, okay, we tried for two days. Baby looks good. I didn't go into labor. I'm just going to go home for a couple of days. We'll try this again in two days. You know what I mean? See if maybe my body is ready then. Wow. Um, There's always many options. Someone, if I'm working with you, if I'm your doula and I'm working with you and you have all of this trauma Mm -hmm. and it, you just need a baby, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Like I can feel where you were at in that moment. Like mm-hmm. I have tried and I have tried and I've tried, but really I've tried for five years. Yes. So, I was so over like, it. Were you just walking to the operating room? Like, yeah. hello, give me my baby. I was right like, now. roll me back <laughs> because <laughs> I was so over it. I kept telling Harold, we've waited six years and now I'm having to wait even longer. This no. baby was due last Friday. Like, just give me, <laughs> just give me. And now he's missed the school cutoff. He no, did. Just kidding. He did miss the school <laughs> cutoff though. Yeah. And believe me, I, I was acutely aware of that. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. But I was, yes, I was so over it. For boys, it's the best thing though. So I have heard that. Mine yes. was born August 21st and we held him. Oh, okay. So, anyway, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So, so missing the cutoff could be a good thing. Exactly. You know, in the end. So they wheel you back. Oh, but they didn't wheel me back for another six hours. By oh, because the they were busy. They were busy. They're like, oh, we have emergency C-sections ahead of you where the baby's maybe being compromised. And so we really need to have those done first. And mm-hmm. you know what? You guys look great. So just hang out here. Did they turn Pitocin off though? They did. Okay. So everything gets shut off. You're able, to, you're not able to eat. No, because I had, had that to epidural. To, yeah. And you had to go to a C-section. So they won't let you eat. Exactly. So you, could, could you have Jello or popsicles? No, or it was like nothing, nothing by mouth. Okay. Right. Were you starving? I was starving and thirsty. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I forgot that morning when my water broke, they found meconium in it. Oh, okay. And meconium is very normal Mm post-term, but it can also be a sign of distress. So I'm assuming they kept you on continuous monitoring. Yes. Yeah. Just to make sure that like little Hudson was doing okay. Yes. So he's born. Yeah. 6.07 PM. He was born. So I did finally get wheeled back. Yes. You got wheeled back. Harold was with you. Did you just feel, people tell me they feel pressure. I felt a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. And they kept telling me like when I would feel pressure, I didn't expect to feel that much pressure. So it was almost like, am I in pain or is this just pressure? And I felt a lot of, I don't know, just, you just feel things. And sometimes- But not pain. It wasn't pain. It was just, it was uncomfortable. I will say that. Yeah. Some people have told me it felt like they were doing mashed potatoes, Mm. like stirring mashed potatoes (laughs) on their stomach. Other people have said pressure. Some women are like, I didn't feel anything at all. You know, I think- That must be nice. um, on your epidural versus maybe like a spinal block too. Like there's, if you already had an epidural, they would continue on with that. But if you were coming mm-hmm. in for say a scheduled C-section, you may get a spinal block. So just a little different version of anesthesia for mm-hmm. that. Who knows? Who knows? So, yeah. um, so I'm dying to know right now though, like how much did he weigh? Oh, he ended up <laughs> so weighing eight pounds, seven ounces. Oh my goodness. 
goodness. I was shocked. So he was huge yes. for your little body too. I couldn't so. believe it. And with the meconium, everything was fine. He didn't inhale it or did he, he go to did. the NICU? Yeah. He didn't have to go to the NICU, but the neonatologists were down there. They had to take okay. a while to suction out everything. Oh, okay. Good though. But he stayed with you. Yes. Okay. I was like, please don't let this story end with then he went to the NICU. No, I was like, thank goodness. Handle it. Thank so, goodness he did Okay, not. so he stayed with you. So yeah. did he, you got to see him and then did Harold hold him first? Harold got to hold him first okay. and got to see him first because of course the doctor's like, hey, you can pop up and see now from over the curtain. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so then we were rolled back and honestly, a lot of it is fuzzy. Like I really don't remember them putting him on my chest because you are drugged out of your mind. Yeah. Yeah, like I was, woo. So I do remember when he first started latching and yeah. he latched very easily and just started nursing. And it was just amazing. Like I, the moment I will never forget when the doctor said, okay, he's here, he's out. And I'm like, he's here. And I'm just bursting into tears and I'm, you know, got my arms out and, but I couldn't see anything. Yeah, I was just looking up at the ceiling, yeah. but I just could not believe that he was here. After six years, he's here. Yeah. Yeah. And you get to take him home. Yes. Yes. It was a dream come true. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. Congratulations to you guys. Now, do you have a good milk supply? Were you able to continue to nurse? Thank goodness. Yes. So I'm still nursing. Something went easy for you. I know. (laughs) I mean, it was like, I couldn't believe that my body actually was able to create the milk and continue Because I've heard so many horror stories about nursing. And so I didn't know what to expect. But yeah, we've been exclusively breastfeeding for the past four months. Yay. Congratulations. That's really a huge, like, uh, it's just a big accomplishment. Thank you. Thank you. So I pumped too. Yeah. But while you're at work all day or here, I was like, here, we've been here for an hour. (laughs) Right. I have a flexible schedule. We kind of make our own schedule. I have a territory. So sometimes I'm pumping in the car. That may not be the best thing, but yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I do I do pump in different offices and things like that. So I try to stay on a schedule. But yeah. When I was a pharmaceutical rep, I also pumped. Did you? In the in car. The car? Yes. In the car. Yeah. Very, very often. So yeah. traveling, um, working women, we have to do what we can do, you know? Oh, yeah. I get it. So, Michelle, <laughs> it has just been like amazing to have you on and to hear. I mean, I know I just like pummeled you with questions. No, it's okay. Thank <laughs> you. From like all different, it's a birth story podcast. And I'm like, but I have to know all these things. Yes. I'm just like too curious. And if I'm curious, then I think people listening are probably curious. So thank you for just like hanging with me for like so long and letting me dive in. You're welcome. To so many things. Um, okay. So one last thing before we go is what has been your favorite like pregnancy or baby product? So the Haka silicone breast pump is awesome. You're able to put it on one breast while the baby's nursing on the other. And so that extra milk that kind of collects that would maybe just go into a nursing pad can be collected in a real place and then put away for later. And you do not lose the milk. Exactly. It is such a miracle invention. And I'll link to it in the show notes. Yes. I love that. And then really quick, how do we get a hold of you on Instagram or Facebook? And then if you'll just say your hashtag one more time. Sure. So hashtag start asking. And you can contact me on Facebook through Nichelle Wynn Sublet. And it's Nichelle with an N like Nancy. Or on Instagram, I'm under Nichelle W. Sublet. And I'll link to both of those in the show notes too. 
Oh, and I also have a website, www.nichellesublet.com. Great. Well, I hope everyone will find you. Thank you. And I just, ooh, I do have one more question before we go. Sure. This might be too much. It's okay. But I really, so what about the other four embryos? Are you going to try again? Or are you going to pursue the um, uh, carrier? So what's your plan? Our plan is definitely to try again. We are super hopeful that we can have a sibling or two for little Hudson and we, but we want to wait until he's maybe 18 months or older. Like, I feel like I need a break. My body needs a break. And I also just want to really focus on him right now and just like enjoy that time. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, definitely want more kids. Okay. Oh, wonderful. Okay. I just was thinking about it and I was like, oh, that's that one last question. Sure. Thank you for joining me today and for helping educate everyone and for just like spreading your platform even further. And I hope that after today's podcast, you'll see a lot more of the hashtag start asking. I hope so. Thank you so much for having me and for doing this podcast. It's wonderful. It's helping so many women. It is. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Birth Story. My goal is you will walk away from each episode with a clear picture of how labor and delivery might go and that you will feel empowered by the end of your pregnancy to speak up, plan and prepare for the birth you want, no matter what that looks like.